0: Episode 73 of Running Manners. My name's Matt North. I'm joined by my co-host Paul Hadfield. How are you, mate? Mate, I'm well.
1: I'm well. Nice long weekend. Yeah, a bit of running down the coast. What about you? Yep, I'm going
0: good. Going good. Our special guest today is Andy Du Bois. Thanks for giving up your time today, Andy.
2: Pleasure, guys. Good to be here.
0: Perfect. Before we get into it, I'd like to thank our partners, Goo Energy, Renala, Sydney Brewery, Guy Me Allied Health. Basecamp Altitude T8 Run, Precision Hydration and Fractal Performance Headwear.
1: So Andy, uh, you're the, the head coach of Mile 27, um, which has been around for quite a long time now, but your, your background was in personal training and then a bit of Ironman work. Can you fill the listeners in on how you got to Mile 27 in the first place?
2: You know, I started as a uh, surveyor. I did uh, five years at uni and did surveying um, because back in, the, back in the early 90s, sports science wasn't a thing. Personal training wasn't a thing. Um, so I kind of looked elsewhere. But then after about a year of that, I kind of thought, no, this is not for me. Um, so then got into personal training. Um, only a few years after that, got into triathlon coaching and strength and conditioning coaching. Did all the courses necessary for that. So I started doing that um, obviously face-to-face back in the, the late 90s um, and throughout my personal training career, I always you know, coached marathons, um, triathletes and stuff like that um, and it wasn't until kind got internet and technology caught up with us, I was able to offer online stuff. But yeah, I did um, Ironman for 10 years, in the mostly in the 90s. Um, then moved to London with my wife and the thought of doing an Ironman in London or training for Ironman, just doing you know, pools and 19.9 metre basement pools, uh, riding around the streets of London. I kind of thought, no, nah, I can't do this. Um, so the mate of mine said, uh, why don't you do this race in Scotland? It's called the West Highland Way, um, which is a 95 mile race in Scotland. Um, I kind of thought, that sounds like a good idea. So that was my first ultra of any description. Um, made every mistake you can possibly think of in an ultra, uh, but somehow managed to finish. I think the, you know, the background of doing 10 Ironmans um, gave me a fair bit of mental strength and kind of the stubbornness to say, look, I'm just going to finish this thing. Um, after I did that, I kind of thought that was horrendous, but I loved it. Um, I, think I'm, I think I'm better than what that race showed me to be. So I thought I had one more crack and just give one more crack and just see how it went. So I formed up for UTMB, um, which back and then you didn't need to qualify for, you just had to be you know, quick on the, on the entry. So that was my second ultra, um, did a fair bit differently training-wise for that one um, and nailed it, had an absolute blind of a race, ran 28 and bit hours, uh, felt strong at the end, just had an absolute blind of a race. And that was me, it was hooked from then on. And then coaching-wise, you know, all that time I've been coaching triathletes and marathon runners. And then um, once I'd done those, I kind of did a lot more research and study into um, how it differs between marathon and ultras. And uh, because I was just taking, you know, Ironman principles and marathon training principles and trying to just go longer for ultras. And after my first one, I quickly realised that that just doesn't work. You have to think about things a lot differently. So I kind of went back to the drawing books and kind of rethought about how to train and applied it to myself and then started coaching other people with that. And then we left London in 2010, uh, 2011, got back to Australia, got back into personal training in Sydney and then got an email and this guy said, do you do online coaching? And I said, "Um, yes, yes, I do online coaching. (laughs) Uh, The next few days was a mad scramble to get something on the website that made it look like I did online coaching. (laughs) and then yeah it just took off um you know within within a year online coaching made up half my business so within two years it made up 80 percent of my business so then i decided just to quit the personal training uh, and just do online full-time and just devote myself to that um and it grew to the point where if you know i've got uh, ben working for me and simon working for me i've got a waiting list um so yeah it's gone gone really really well
1: Oh, man, that's fantastic! And, and you look like you've got a very diverse bunch of clients across the globe. You're, you're not picky with uh, which which countrymen you you coach.
2: No, well, funnily enough, I am picky in that I look for like that diversity has come about by me kind of prioritising athletes I want to coach in locations I want to coach. So, someone says if you've got a spot free, it kind of well, it kind of depends. Depends what you're training for. Depends where you live, depends not like I don't care if you're an elite or back of the pack. Like I coached a guy to do UTMB and um, he finished in 44, 58 or 45 minutes under the cutoff, whatever it was, maybe it was 45, 55. Um, but I was so pumped for him because he, he he spent the last 90k. He's never more than three minutes ahead of the cutoff. was mm-hmm. on the edge the whole time, but he just stuck with it. Stuck with it. So I don't care whether you're you know Ben Duffus type athlete going to win races or you're back of the pack. But if you're if you want to challenge yourself, if you want to push yourself beyond what you think you're capable of, if you are doing races that interest me, something new, something different. If you live in Iceland or Argentina or. Uh, you know, some place like that, I'm like, oh, that that interests me. I haven't got anybody in Argentina at the moment. I might take that client on. So it's kind of built up kind of me organically kind of thinking about who I want to coach. So now I've got clients all over the world from Kuwait, uh, Iceland, US, UK, Hong Kong, uh, Vietnam, uh, yeah, everywhere. So it's, it's interesting being coached, having that diversity of both athletes and ability and locations.
0: I suppose it would be a time management thing as well, so not only depending on who, who you'd like to coach but how many people you could take on yourself besides, um, you know, having to delegate them to Ben or other other coaches. Have you got a specific number that seems to work well for you?
2: Yeah, for me, I cap it at 100, 100 athletes, Um which kind of sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, but it's my full-time job. It's a 40, 50-hour-a-week job, and it's all that I do. I don't do anything else. Um, and I've just found that any more than 100, I'm starting to work, you know, 9, 10, 11-hour days, and it's just, you know, the work-life balance is gone, and I'm now just glued to my computer 12 hours a day, and it's just not, it's not good for me, um, which is why i got the other coaches on, so I can, you know, offload clients to them. So for me, that's the number that works well. It's, it's the sweet spot between giving me enough business to earn a decent living from the job, but also making sure I can deliver the level of coaching and the level of service that I want to deliver to my clients mm-hmm. and not feel like they're just you know, a number that I don't really know that well. I mean, I, I kind of pride myself on the fact that I know my clients really well. Like a lot of my clients are good friends. I can go to Hong Kong or go to Iceland and catch up with them socially because I know them. And that doesn't come about unless you spend the time communicating with your athletes on a regular basis. So for me, that number is a hundred and I don't go above that because I know it just, something has to give away. Either it's the quality or it's the work life balance and I don't want either to give away.
0: And you've got to fit in two hours of training a day too. Oh, mate, I wish,
2: <laughs> I wish trainings. Um, yeah, look I've, for those that don't know, I've got two young kids, a two year old and a five year old and, uh, Training suffered the last four or five years. Let me tell you. Um, I uh, you <laughs> yeah. It's less of a priority. Look, I, I'm itching to get back into it. And my two-year-old's just got kind of to start sleeping through the night regularly. So I'm now just at a point where I can start thinking about some consistency. But before that, you know, I'd put in a couple of good months and then there'd be, you know, a week and a half of him waking at two, not getting to bed till four, taking turns with my wife and getting four hours sleep and... You just can't train hard and consistently when that's happening. So I've kind of haven't forced it. I haven't pushed it. So I thought, well, no, training races will be there. Let's just focus on the kids, the work, the work-life balance. And when that settles down, I'll get back into to racing it and um, training properly again. So, yeah, training suffered the last few years, that's for sure.
1: And uh, I've heard that the best way to get a two-year-old to sleep through the night is to change time zones several times in, in the space of a month. Can you explain uh, where you've been travelling through this COVID period? You've been all over the place, yeah, it Andy.
2: It only works if you go a certain direction. If you go the other direction, it's not good at all.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, so we, um, we packed up a house in Byron, my, my oldest, who's just turned five in January this year, we thought we'll start with school next year. This will be the last year we can travel without taking her out of school. So I packed the house up in Byron, went to Singapore. I did a few uh, podcasts and talks in Singapore. Holidays in uh, India for a couple of weeks, went to Malaysia for a couple of weeks, went to Japan. COVID hit um, and then we were humming a harring, should we come home, should we stay in Japan? And look, it seems like a pretty obvious decision now, with with how it's turned out. But back then, it's like it might blow over in a month or two. Maybe we should just stay in Japan, ride it out, you know. But we came back and um, yeah, have been in been in Airbnbs for the last six months, really. You know, with with no home to go to. Um, we're in Adelaide for five months. We're now in uh, sunny Queensland, um, moving from one Airbnb to the next, which. You know, to some some people stuck in, particularly stuck in Victoria, might think that sounds perfect, uh, and it has its advantages. But you know, to be honest, every week we've got to look at where we're going to stay next week. We've got to find accommodation. Um, yeah, it's it's not as glamorous as it might sound, and it's it, it's just more stuff to do. It's just moving house every few weeks, looking for somewhere to live. Yeah, it's it has its downsides.
1: And trying to run a business at the same time, Andy, must be challenging. Yeah.
2: Yeah, always looking for, has it got good internet? Is it somewhere where I can work? You know, with two kids not going to school, no daycare, they're at home. So is there a you know a spot that I can work that the kids aren't kind of yelling at me? And yeah, it's, it's, it's had its challenges. It's great. I get to spend a lot of time with kids, but it means a lot of late nights at work trying to catch up with programs that haven't been done during the day. But can't complain too much. Do what you got to do. Yeah.
1: So, mate, I've read on the internet, so it must be true, that it's uh, it's been predicted that you will live to the grand old age of 112 years old. Now, how did you arrive at this impressive figure?
2: <laughs> oh, I'm pretty happy with that. I don't know where you got that figure from. But, um... oh, mate,
1: I've been trawling through the archives and, uh, yeah, I think we were talking about heart rate per minute and extrapolating that um, out to how many years you'll live to.
2: Yes, I do remember that. It was a discussion on... Um... There's, there's, there's a lot of talk on particularly among non runners how you know uh, us runners will wear ourselves out. You know, with the idea that we've got a, a fixed amount of heartbeats, and therefore, if you run more, you, you'll use those heartbeats up quicker. Um, and I just did a bit of maths on a theoretical example in, in looking at if you train an X amount of hours per day. Um, yes, you do, you know, your heart rate does beat more often, uh, but then of course, your resting heart rate drops. My, my resting heart rate. When I was doing Ironman was down to 32. Um, now, you know, I'm not as, no one here is fit as I was then. It's probably low 40s. Um, so, you know, compare yourself to someone who's unfit whose who's resting heart rate is 65, 70, 80. Um, you know, those of us who are fit, we spend a lot of their days, you know, resting heart rate of 45, 50. If you subscribe to the idea that your heart has a finite lifespan, you're going to live longer by exercising more. Um, so, yeah, for all those of you who are thinking that you're going to, doing yourself out, oh, don't worry about that. You're not. Nice. Uh, you're getting, you're getting.
1: That's good chat, Andy. 112 yeah. is pretty good. Yeah. I reckon you'll get and there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, mate, uh, I, I believe you're uh, a, a big exponent of, of meditation. Um, and so the idea of this meditation on mindfulness is sort of training your mind to observe its state and surrounding without attaching judgment to it. How can our listeners sort of tap into this indifference or acceptance in order to dominate their next ultramarathon race?
2: Good, good question. So I think the application has to be in races, you know, we have lots of thoughts. Now, whether we attach those thoughts and give those thoughts meaning can determine how our physical body responds to that. So, you know, if you tell yourself in a race that I'm feeling shit, I'm running so slow, my legs are really sore, then it's unlikely that you're going to pick up the pace. Like those, those subconscious, um, the thoughts that turn into subconscious kind of emotional messages and thoughts affect the, the physical body um, and it's hard to counteract that. But if you don't attach to those thoughts and just go, my thoughts are saying I'm feeling like crap, but I don't really need to buy into that because look, I'm 80Ks into a miler, I'm not meant to feel good. Like the idea that I'm feeling bad, like that's stupid because I'm not meant to feel good 80Ks into a miler. So does that thought help me? No. So let's just let it go and focus on the present. Now, I think, you know, any kind of meditation teacher or any kind of sports psychologist will, will say that the more you can remain present in the activity you're doing, and the less you can think about the past or the future, the better you're going to perform. Um, You know, In sports like tennis or cricket, they always say focus on the ball that's coming, not what the implication of this shot or this game or serve will mean for the future, because then you start to choke. So same thing in running. It's like, don't worry about how you feel now extrapolated for 20K, because you might start thinking, shit, if I feel like this at 80K, how the hell am I going to keep running at 120K? That doesn't matter. How you feel now is not indicative of how you might feel at 120K. I mean, we've all had races where we've had massive lows, but then, you know, 10K further on, we've suddenly found some flow and we're ticking along feeling great again. So the more thought you give to those negative thoughts, the more attachment you have to those negative thoughts, the longer you're going to dwell in that low spot and the harder it's going to be to get out of that low spot and get back out to finding some flow again. And I think, you know, most of us will know, well, that sounds logical, but I think the, the thing people kind of miss out on is practicing that in training. Like it can be really easy. Like when you're doing a, you know, a set of 1K reps, for example. Now you say you've got six 1K reps. First two go pretty well. And then the third K, you start thinking, oh shit, this is, this is feeling pretty tough. I don't know if I can keep this up for the next four, four reps, you know? Straight away you go, right, this is a chance for me to kind of practice being mindful and being in the present. You go, what does it matter? Can I do this rep at the pace that I set myself to do? Just focus on that. Now, an easy way to do that is not even think that far ahead. Think, let's just count to three or four or ten and just keep counting. Because as soon as you start focusing on counting and nothing else, you've forgotten about it hurts, you've forgotten about how many more reps do I have to do, and you're just thinking one, two, three, and that's all you do. So the more you practice that in training, the more that becomes automatic in racing. Um, And you'll find all the good athletes do it either subconsciously because that's just through their life experience They've developed those techniques or they've trained themselves to do that. Um, either way, it doesn't matter. Like some people are just mentally tough through the experiences of their life and they've found a way to do that. Others have trained themselves to do that. But Both obviously work. But I think we're missing a trick if we don't practice it in training. Even when, you know, when you do those runs and you go head out the door, it's just an easy run and about 10 minutes and you go, this sucks, Like I'm just not feeling it today, like... You know, and you get through the run, like you do your 60 minutes or whatever, but it's not fun and you, you get home and you go, thank God, that's over. Where, whereas 10 minutes into the run, you think, okay, this sucks. Think, right, perfect. This is a great chance to practice a mindfulness. So instead of thinking this sucks, let's just slow the pace down. Let's just think about what's going on. Let's take in the smells, take in the sights, take in the sounds, listen to your feet hit the ground, focus on your breathing, just forget about any expectations of what this run should feel like and allow yourself to be present and what it does still like. And you'll start finding that actually it's all right. It's not quick, but like, it's fine. Practice, practice, practice. Like anybody who's done any meditation will know, you know, you sit down, you go rock, I'm gonna meditate 10 minutes, 30 seconds into it go, how long's that been? Is that, must be, must be five minutes. Sure, you your watch it's one minute. It takes practice. So the more you can practice these little techniques and training, the easier it is in racing. Yeah,
0: some really good advice there. Yeah, go, I like that. Go out and practice it straight away. Yeah, that That's third third K rep yeah. gets me every time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Driving there, that gets me too. <laughs>
1: uh, Madam, um, I've got a little question harking back to your Ironman days, and and just comparing that to ultra marathon, Andy. So, what I don't want to hear out of this question is it depends. I want <laughs> I want some definitive <laughs> answers. So, given the same time spent on course, which race? Ultra marathon versus Ironman will cause you more anxiety the night before the race. Ironman. Yep. And, and, and what most, do you put
2: that down to? For most people, Ironman gives more anxiety. Like, if you if you look around the start line at an Ironman or the start line at an ultra, I've seen people literally vomiting or in tears with anxiety pre-race of an Ironman. Whereas ultra, most people are standing around chatting, talking, smiles and places. Not yeah. to say there isn't an anxiety at the start line for an ultra. But I think the thing with IMAN is so many things can go wrong, that you have no control over. Like it can be kicked in the face. So I've, I've had black eyes from the swim leg. I've had the seat, the post, the little bolt that holds your seat onto your seat points on the bike. Snapped in half during one of my races. Yeah. yeah and it's sort of flying on the ground on my back going, what the hell happened then? Um, I've been bitten by insects in a race, you know, chain falls off, you got flat tires, all these things are out of your control. So when things are out of your control, we tend to have more anxiety about that. Yeah. In an ultra, you no, know, as much as we might think, oh, I didn't expect that to happen, most things that happen in an ultra can be traced back to lack of preparation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like your stomach going bad, stuff like that. Well, probably nine times out of 10, if you trained your stomach better, trained in hot conditions, had had a plan B and a plan C, and took more pre-race, um, preparation before the race, those problems wouldn't have happened. Whereas for Ironman, shit just happens and you just can't control that. So I think that leads to higher anxiety.
1: Okay. Good answer.
0: Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. It means the Ironman are tougher than the ultramarathoners. I don't know. Just, just wear brighter clothes, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can, hey, uh, Amy, can I ask you a, a coaching question? Um, if you took on a, a, a new athlete and, and they were say at the elite level but weren't doing any strength training they were just doing an endurance running training how much emphasis do you put on them starting strength work
2: look i think strength is beneficial whether you're back of the pack or elite uh, you know the, all the research shows that there put it aside there really isn't any research to show that it doesn't help um, i think the balance with strength training and i'm a massive fan of it Um, The balance though is trying trying to fit it in with what the athletes are already doing and trying to find that sweet spot between both the amount of strength training and the type of strength training. So the athlete buys into it. Because if you give an athlete uh, a type of strength training that they just don't enjoy, for example, it might require them to go to a gym, it might require them to learn how to lift heavy, uh, which might take two or three months and might require them getting quite sore and missing training sessions you know, for a lot of runners, they're just not going to buy into that. They're going to give it a go because you know, the coach said so, but they're going, you know what coach, sure. I'm just not enjoying it. I'm skipping sessions. It's like well, there's no point prescribing strength work and have the athlete not actually do it. So I think as coaches and as strength coaches, we've really got to think about, can I get the athlete to buy into what I want them to do? Can I fit it into their program such that it doesn't affect their running? Or if it does affect their running, it's only in a positive way. Like, can I get them to do it consistently. Because unless you can tick those boxes, we're wasting our time. Mm. Um, I'm much bigger on kind of lighter weight, more dynamic plyometric type strength running, which doesn't require a gym. Um, And if done correctly, you know, the the introduction into it doesn't involve lots of soreness. Um, For those of you who have been to a gym, you know what it's like, you haven't done strength work for a while. You go back into the gym because everyone says you should do some. You do a session, you do it super light because you know you should do it super light. But the next day you're super sore. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of think, well, that sucks because now I've missed the next three runs and you don't go back to the gym again. Because most people don't realise how light and how easy the first workout into a, a typical strength training training program has to be to not be sore the next day. Now, if you're not running regularly, who cares? Like, if you're just trying to get fit, it doesn't matter if you're sore. But if you're running 60, 70, 80, 100k a week and you're sore for four days and you can't run, yeah, that does, that does matter. Mm-hmm. So I much prefer to start on kind of Body weight, uh, dynamic kind of, and really ease the client into it. So, you know, the first session, I say I felt it, but look, I was fine the next day to run. I think you can, if you can do that, you, you get your clients buying into the strength training, and they stick with it, and then they start seeing the results. And that doesn't matter whether they're back in the pack or the, or they're elite. Just because they're elite doesn't mean they can't benefit from strength training. They certainly can. Yeah, for
1: sure, it's good. All right, covered strength. We we'll talk about flexibility.
0: Yeah,
1: mate, I, Andy, I love your quote. Have you ever seen a cat or a dog holding a stretch for 30 seconds? That's fantastic. So is there any room for static stretching in my life as a sub amateur runner?
2: Um, Yep. Without a doubt at all. Depends on what you're doing it for though. If you're doing it because you're having to bend over because you've got young kids and you can barely touch your toes and you get sick of the inflexibility of trying to play with the kids, then, you know, or if you're sitting on the ground and you find sitting on the ground playing with a kid particularly uncomfortable because you can't cross your legs, static stretching, yep, that will definitely help. No question at all. If you're doing static stretching under the belief that it will either help you prevent running injuries or give you greater range of movement when you're running, then there is so much evidence out there now that just says that's not the case at all. Um, what we typically don't, don't understand is stretching is not stretching. So the ability to bend over, touch your toes and hold that position has no relation whatsoever to the ability of your leg to swing forward in a greater range of movement and have a longer stride length. They're just not related. It's as similar as golf and running. Like, it, there's just no correlation at all. Yep. So if you, and unfortunately, that myth still persists. Like I had a client just yesterday say, should I be doing stretching? And I said, no. They said, but, but, but everything I read says I shouldn't, I shouldn't, wouldn't a more flexible athlete mean longer stride length and more power? It's like, well, no, unless that flexibility comes from dynamic stuff. Because if, you're, if you've got greater flexibility, you've got less elastic recoil, less muscular strength, and you'll actually be less efficient when you run. Mm. So a good example, if you take a yoga teacher, uh, who's done nothing but yoga for their lives, and then they start running, they've got amazing flexibility and good strength in doing the types of poses that yoga evolves, but get them doing it dynamically and running and they lose so much elastic energy t- into the ground because they just haven't trained that. Mm. So no dynamic stretching, not static stretching. Yeah.
0: Great. Yeah. That's good. Cause I haven't static stretched for 20 years. Oh, I subscribe to it too. Yeah. No, yeah, no, no, no. No time no. to start now. Uh, that's right. But I guess if our, uh, if our listeners were interested in some, uh, dynamic exercises before they start running they could also they could just youtube and to get some ideas and he's got some... yeah,
2: there's plenty of stuff out there just simple things like leg swings high knees kicking your butt hopping skipping bounding all that kind of stuff is, is great for for dynamic flexibility
1: yeah and it's, it seems like um you're very heavy into your prescription of specific style strength and flexibility stuff so would you say the majority of your prescribed exercises are done in a standing and particularly one-legged scenario?
2: Definitely standing. Uh, one leg is a progression. Yeah. Um, I just think there's... You've got to understand with strength training that the further away from the task you're training for, the exercise is, the less benefit there is. So when I say further away, if you take you know, running, which is done vertically, is done rapidly, Um, versus lying on your back doing a a leg exercise, slowly, um, you've got to think, well, there's a long long way to get from lying on your back doing a slow controlled exercise to running upright vertically. Mm -hmm. Now, not to say there isn't some benefit, but the benefit just gets watered down, watered down the further away you go. So to be truly effective, you want to be as close to running as you can, but it's got to be different enough to running that you're just not doing the same thing as running. Um, so, it's got to be different enough to load you more than running so you get the benefits to running. So, for example, you know, if you are doing a wall sit, most people know what a wall sit is, you know, when you're you leaning against the wall in a half squat position and just hold that position. So, you're working your legs, you're upright, so you've ticked a couple of boxes, but you're not moving. You're using two legs at once. So, how beneficial would that be to, to running versus, say, something like a jump lunge? When you start one leg forward, one leg back, you jump up into the air, you swap your legs, you land down again. Now you've had a medicine ball and you start rotating your arms side to side as you do that. And now you've got an exercise that looks like running, but it's harder than running, it's dynamic. So the the translation of strength to something like that to running is gonna be far, far greater than a wall sit or a leg extension or in a typical gym related machine. So, and the, the beauty of stuff like that is you don't need to go to a gym, you can do it at home. You don't need specific equipment. Anything you do need, you can be found at home. So I think, you know, strength training—you need to find something you can do. Um, there's no point. The best strength training program in the world is useless if unless the athlete does it. Mm-hmm. Um, so something you can do and something that's going to have maximum carryover benefit to your running is where I kind of come from with strength training. Yeah, that's
0: perfect. Very specific. Yep. Good tips. So. Um, what about cross training in sports? Is is there a place for that, and, and do you um, do you recommend it for your athletes?
2: Um, like most answers given by myself and
0: Ben, it, it depends. Um, <laughs> oh, don't worry, I'll edit that out. Start again. <laughs> so,
2: first, the first thing you look at is can the athlete do more running. So, if they've got time for cross training. My first thought is, okay, if you've got time for cross-training, you've got time for more running. And more running is almost always going to be better. Um, Or if you've got time for cross-training, but we've maxed out the amount of running you can do based on, historically, once we go above 80K a week, you start to break down, then instead of cross-training, I suggest strength. Then you think, well, okay, let's take the athlete who's doing two strength sessions a week. The amount of running they are doing is historically about the most they can handle, and they've got more time. So then what do we say? Do we suggest more running, which historically has led them to injury, or do we suggest prostrating? I would then have a discussion on running, on running pace, um, running frequency, in terms of, okay, if you're running 80k a week and you're doing five runs a week, and historically any more than that's led you to injury, what about if we gave you some doubles? If we split some of those one-hour runs into two by 30-minute runs, what about if we slowed them down 10 or 15 seconds per K and added another two half-hour runs to that mix instead of cross training mm-hmm. So then we've got an extra hour of running. We've slowed down the easy runs a little bit so it's less stressful on the body. That's probably gonna lead to better long runs and better high-intensity runs and be a win-win overall. So that, that would be my next train of thought. If for some reason that just didn't work, then I'd say, look, you've got more time, so let's do some cross training. Um, An example of that might be an athlete who, coming back from injury, or typically can't do more than one high intensity session per week. Just, they might be, historically have some Achilles problems that, you know, we push them hard more than once a week, they start to break down. Well, let's give them an elliptical interval session so I'm trying to think about how we can best use that extra time to maximise return on running.
0: Makes sense. And um, as specific as possible to running.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. it. So last resort stuff. You yeah. don't have to get on the elliptical at all, Wolf.
2: No, just run more. Perfect. <laughs> i got the message. If they're mountain runners, hiking would be my next thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: If you've got more time to hike, you know, if you've got a treadmill, do some hiking reps because that's very low risk. And it's more specific than going for a bike ride or an elliptical or something. So that'll be my next suggestion if, if running-wise you know, people feel uncomfortable adding more in, do some hiking.
1: Mate, that actually brings me to my first listener question for the day. So this is uh, from the Swiss Machine. So I'm sick of being dominated by my Sherpa-like running mate on the long climbs. How can I walk faster on the hills?
2: Good question. Um, I think too few of us train hiking specifically. We kind of think that if we're run fit, we're hike fit. Um, And you only have to kind of be passed by someone who's a good hiker in a race to realise that, wow, okay, I've I've got some work to do there. Um, So I think adding hiking into your training program is particularly beneficial. I think how people do it, though, could be a lot better. Like I look at my athletes and... Now, when I first take them on, first thing I do is analyse the, you know, the last month or so of training and look at you know, how much hiking are they do in the long runs. Are they doing any hiking training, hill training, etc.? What I often see is too much hiking in their long runs. Like, you know, if you're training for a you know, UTA or BTU or you know a big race like UTMB or something, you know, you know you need to do hilly hilly runs in training. But often I'll see more than 50% of the time spent hiking in training. Now, the, the fitness gains in hiking like that I are nowhere near as much as running. So, we've got to be careful in thinking about how we can get hiking fit. Now, I, I think you're better off trying to run more of your long runs. So, for example, you might drop your vert a little bit in your long run so you can run 60 70% of that, but then adding some high-intensity hiking training into your mix. So, if you've got a treadmill, you could do some you know, 15% hard hiking efforts. If you haven't, then I strap a backpack five, six, seven, eight kilos of water in the pack and do some hiking reps up a steep hill. Um, I think that really helps. I mean, when I did UTMB, one thing I did differently between training for UTMB and training for West Island Way was I did two-hour treadmill sessions at fifteen percent gradient, just hiking the whole time. Wow! Just because I knew UTMB, you know the climbs there are three, four hours long, and unless you're used to pushing the pace hiking for long periods of time. You're just not used to that kind of repetitive emotion of just hiking, hiking, hiking. So I got to the point where I was doing 15 percent gradient, six and a half k's an hour for two hours, and feeling comfortable with that. Um, so come race day, hiking wasn't no, wasn't an issue for me at all. Um, so I think too few of don't do enough specific higher intensity hiking training, and that's where the key is. If you can get yourself a steep hill, do some reps pushing hard up hiking, run back
0: down, and repeat the games are going to be their race day. Perfect.
1: Mm, good advice. This machine will
0: whap that up, yeah. I reckon. I can see him up and down Greenhaven already. <laughs> uh, I've, got to, I've got another question for you, Andy, regarding um, getting athletes to slow down. Strava seems to send people out running their slow runs faster than they should. How do you, uh, how do you get your athletes to slow down on their slow runs?
2: Yeah, good question. And it's, it's probably the biggest mistake I see, probably the biggest mistake most coaches see when they take on a new athlete. So first of all, you've got to kind of establish, well, what pace should their slow run, easy run be at? Um, now, it depends what metrics and what kind of devices you have. If you've got nothing, you've just got standard watch, GPS, um, no heart rate, no power. Um, speed is pretty useless because it'll vary on the trails anyway. Um, so my kind of go-to advice is it should feel so comfortable that you can hold a normal conversation without any issues at all um and if you can do that then typically it's slow enough um if you've got something like power um then i can obviously prescribe you, know, you need to sit at 180, 200 watts if you've got heart rate i don't use heart rate much but those of you who do use heart rate then obviously you can set your heart rate zones as well um, but i think it's also education i think it's you know, us coaches responsibility to educate the athlete on why running slower is going to make them run faster. I think that's often a missing link. Clients don't understand that. They think, well, I've got to run a bit faster. Well, why don't I? Like, so you, know, you take off with your easy run and you feel good. So you're you running just naturally, you're running a bit faster because you're having a good day. think, Well, it's okay. It feels easy. So why can't I run a bit faster, even though it's maybe 10 or 15 seconds per K faster than what a normal easy run is. The problem is that even though cardiovascular, it feels easy, your legs are still running 10 or 15 seconds per K faster. So the load on them is greater than what a normal easy run is. Mm. So when you come to do your hard session the day up, you kind of, well, I haven't got as much pop in my legs. So like, well, no wonder, because you ran 10 or 15 seconds per K faster in an easy run. Mm. So I think it's really educating athletes on why slow runs, easy runs, recovery runs need to be easy. So their faster runs can be faster. Uh, and running Easy Runs faster is detrimental, not positive. Yeah,
0: that's good. Excellent advice. That's good. uh, We might quickly cross to Abby at Precision Hydration. We're with Abby from Precision Hydration. How are you going, Abby?
3: Very well, thank you. Very well. How are you?
0: I'm very well, thank you. So today we're going to chat about women's hydration needs. Are they different to men?
3: Good question. It's one we get a lot um the short answer where we kind of stand on it is i believe no not really um there's some interesting science there which is why we get questioned on it but fundamentally is there a difference in practical terms of what men and women need to do i don't believe there is and it all kind of comes down to that clinical and statistical significance you know in the research it might be statistically some differences but does that translate into a clinical difference you know the, the skill in the game of, of what athletes are actually doing We don't believe that it does um, but this whole idea that there might be differences stems from the fact that women go through the menstrual cycle and, and men don't and in the menstrual cycle you've got fluctuating levels of hormones the two main ones being estrogen and progesterone and have, they have; both play an impact on our sodium and fluid balance. And so that's where this all kind of stems from. But it's not the most straightforward area to understand because those two hormones have opposing effects on sodium and fluid. So it's, it's not nice and clear-cut, you know, it's a, yeah. nice cut of facts. it's a very tricky topic to research. Um, very briefly, estrogen um, has the effect of upregulating the antidiuretic hormone, which is the hormone which um, conserves water. So you obtain more fluid, you absorb more fluid in the kidneys when that's high. But progesterone um, acts as an inhibitor on aldosterone, which is the hormone which conserves sodium. So it inhibits that hormone, it prevents it from doing its job. So when progesterone is high, we're shedding more sodium in our urine. So there, there are two very different actions. You know, one retains fluid and one gets rid of sodium. And when you get rid of sodium, water often follows because the body likes balance. So that those two hormones, the fact that they're ever rising and falling, makes it, it tricky to understand what effect that would have on the female body, but it appears that in young, healthy women, the body's very good at counteracting them effects and regulating itself. And so there doesn't really appear to be a big enough difference that it warrants a change in their hydration strategy. Um, go on that does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, that-
0: yeah. Th- thank you for dumbing it down for me, I, I appreciate that. Um, and so following on from that, do, do women sweat, sweat
3: differently to men? Now, that's a good question because I think, yes, in, in some ways they do In that typically women will have a lower sweat rate than men because we have a smaller body size. We don't have such a high metabolic rate at a given intensity as men often. Um, but there's a caveat to that in that you have to account for that individual variation again. I've worked with a number of women that have extremely high sweat rates. So I don't think it's fair to sort of blanket it and say women always have lower sweat rates than men because there's men out there with lower sweat rates and there's women out there with really high sweat rates. So again, I think it's far better to look at hydration on an individual level rather than, you know, kind of categorizing on some kind of sex difference. Certainly with our own testing, looking at sweat sodium concentration, we haven't seen any differences in that either. You know, the ranges between men and women are the same. I've seen very salty women, very salty men, and and low men and women again. Um, So I think, you know, when looking at hydration and and how a person sweats, you've just got to look at what's their sweat rate, what's their sweat sodium concentration, and and ignore the fact that if they're a woman or, or a man.
0: Perfect. Well, you've answered those two questions really well. I, um, I appreciate your, your time and the chat and thank you for keeping it basic for us.
3: No problem at all. No problem.
0: Uh, and, um, and, if, and if people do want to um, check out their sweat rates, they can do an online quiz on your Precision Hydration website?
3: Yeah, we've got a short online sweat test, which will is more trying to categorise person on their sweat sodium concentration. Um, but if they're interested in sweat rate, we've also got a blog on that. So type sweat rate into our our search bar on the website and, and you'll be met with a spreadsheet where you can you can do some calculations on that. Um, and, of course, any questions, just email us as well, hello at precisionhydration.com. You'll get a real human.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Um, and I've done the sweat test and it literally takes two minutes. It's quick and easy. So it's like a multiple-choice test. So... I'd recommend it. It's uh, quick and easy, and uh, yeah, people can get online and check it out. So thanks for your time, Abby. Thank you, Matt. Cheers, mate. And we're back. Thanks, Abby. That's great, mate. Um, I've
1: got a couple of, I guess, hydration type questions. So, um, I've read a couple of your articles talking about this, and can you explain why is keeping cool more important than keeping hydrated during a race?
2: Yeah, you're your thirst kind of drives hydration uh, in the first place. Now, thirst is derived from a combination of factors. But we all know ourselves that if you're running in 10 degrees, we're not particularly thirsty and we're not particularly dehydrated. Whereas if you run in 30 degrees, thirst increases, we have to drink more. So instead of thinking about hydration as the priority, if you think about keeping body temperature down, then you'll need to drink less. Um, and if you keep body temperature down, then your stomach's likely to function better as well. So one of the big problems people have in ultras is of course you know, poor stomach um, issues. So if you keep body temperature down more, your stomach will likely function better because there's more blood going to the stomach, less blood going to the extremities to try and cool yourself down. So I think you know, when we're training in really hot conditions, the first thing you need to think about is how can I keep myself cool? So for me living in Byron um, in in summer, I'll often freeze a couple of water bottles, um, put them in my pack. So for a two or three hour run, you know, after about 30, 40 minutes, I've now got ice cold water I can pour over my head and drink uh, to help cool me down. Mm. Um, Not to say hydration isn't important. Of course, it's important. But if we can keep, if we can do all we can to keep our body temperature down and then drink the thirst, you've ticked those boxes. Now we used to think that well, a lot of people still think that any more than 2% uh, body weight loss impairs performance, but there's actually no research at all. like Not a single published study mm. that confirms that. Every single study published on that has had their subjects sitting in saunas before the, the test, giving them diuretics or not allowed them to drink during the actual test. Mm. Um, now, none of those scenarios are real world scenarios. So when you actually allow athletes to drink to thirst, and measure uh, body weight losses, we find that even with body weight losses of four, five, six percent, performance is not impacted negatively at all. Mm. So, first priority, drink to thirst, Well, first, first priority, try and keep your body temperature down, then drink to thirst. And most people are fine. And I've got a couple of clients who um, drinking to thirst they have issues with. Now, when I say a couple, I'm talking, you know, one to two percent of my clients need to drink a bit more than what. feel like they need to drink. Mm -hmm. For 98, 99% of us drinking to thirst will be all we
1: need to do. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting. And I I guess they, um, they proved that Gabriel Silesi lost, what was it? 10% of his body weight, breaking the marathon world record. So, you know, it can't have been too detrimental on that day for him.
2: If you look at the data of body weight loss from, uh, finishing times and it goes as a straight line, basically. Right. The people who lose the most weight are the fastest finishers, and the people who lose the least weight are the slowest finishers, and actually the line starts to head up, and the, the really slow finishers often gain weight because they're just drinking too much. Okay. Um, so it, It's well established in the literature if you get past what a lot of uh, sports drink companies want you to believe so they drink more of their product. Not to say sports drink companies you, know, you shouldn't drink sports drinks. They're very, very beneficial, but you know, if you drink them to thirst it's pretty much all you need to do
1: hmm. yeah, yeah for sure and, and i'm not suggesting to our listeners that you should deliberately dehydrate yourself in order to perform Definitely. better but uh yeah. yeah just just listen to the body i think that's that's the key yeah. um i guess in relation to that so uh salt tablets in ultras important or are they just an overhyped yet essentially useless product like bottled water and diamond rings andy
2: Um, I lean more towards the second than the first. Um, The evidence, the evidence is not, like, I'll be honest, the evidence is not 100% conclusive. We've still got more to learn as far as sodium goes. But what we do know is that all the tests they've done on real world athletes, the amount of sodium intake you take doesn't seem to impact performance positively at all. Mm. Um, From a physiological point of view, like, if you test... Blood sodium levels before and after endurance events. We find that often blood sodium levels have increased, yeah. not decreased. So you think, well, if our blood sodium levels are higher post race than lower than before, why would we need to take extra sodium in? Yeah. Um, it's pretty complex, but in trying to summarise it in a simple in a simple way. If you drink to thirst, you're going to lose some fluid. Like you're going to be slightly dehydrated by the end of the race, which is which you know doesn't impact things at all. But if you've got less fluid in your body, then your sodium concentration is going to be higher, provided that your sweat rate is lower than your blood sodium levels, which it is.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so. We, Given that, as long as you drink to thirst, then adding sodium into the mix doesn't really make sense. Um, particularly you know, large amounts of sodium. And people say, oh, I need to take sodium to prevent hyponatremia, which is you know, extreme low blood sodium levels. But there's been some very well documented cases of people who are taking a gram of sodium per hour over 10 plus hours that have suffered massive hyponatremia, like mm. very severe hyponatremia because the extra salt has stimulated thirst and they've drunk more in excess of what the extra salt has, has balanced things out. So, you know, I, I tend to think that your starting point should be, don't take electrolytes. And then if you struggle, add some back in. Mm-hmm. Like I know some people find that their stomach's a little bit happy if they take a little bit of electrolytes. But I think, you know, we've been led to believe that we absolutely need electrolytes and taking them in is the starting point. I think it should be the other way around. I think we should start with none. Mm. And then add a little bit in if you really feel like you're struggling. Now, I get a lot of kind of n equals one uh, proof or evidence that sodium works, yeah. and often it's if I take sodium, I don't cramp, if I don't take it, I do cramp. Mm. But it's likely that the only reason you don't cramp with sodium is you took sodium in just before you're about to cramp, yeah. and that helped stop the cramp. And yeah. yes, that definitely will help stop cramp, no question at all. So If you're in a race and you start feeling maybe crampy, take sodium. It's going to help, no question at all. Mm. But all the sodium you took in the preceding hours had no effect at all on whether you cramped or not at that moment. So I think its it's benefits are overhyped, without a doubt.
1: Yeah, okay. Just like bottled water and diamond rings.
2: Diamond rings, yeah.
1: (laughs) What what about the the, the premise that ingesting sodium or electrolytes helps you to bring glucose over... at a cellular level, into the bo- into the body, is is it helpful in combination?
2: Um, look, the evidence on that is not conclusive at all, um, and I think you've got to understand that when we talk about nutritional evidence and ultras, there's a big difference between a study done on a treadmill with a controlled amount of you know glucose being delivered per hour um, and everything being monitored mm. and out. How- an ultra course where you've taken in a mix of tailwind, hot potato chips, uh, an avocado sandwich, a rice ball, a music bar, etc., yeah. and then try to think that sodium is going to help absorb that. I think it really complicates things as far as deducing from one study that is going to help you with that. Yeah. So once again, I, th- I think, I think you need to test that in training. I think my, my advice would be to start without sodium and start with, Foods that work well on your stomach. And if you're, far, if you're really struggling with that, then take a little bit of sodium and see if it improves. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think we're extrapolating a lot and making some big assumptions if we think that the, the, the concoction that's in our stomachs in an ultra um, is the same environment that's tested in, in studies. Mm-hmm. I think it's so different that we can't really say one equals the other.
1: No, nah, of course not, and and the concoction in my stomach during an ultra is just such a, a messy piece of art that uh, I wouldn't care to pick it apart for scientific purposes. That's for sure. Um, I've recently had had a cracker, just a COVID marathon, a couple of times spaced a couple of months apart. Um, times were fairly similar, pacings were fairly similar, but. One, one thing that was exactly the same was cramping in my right hamstring at the 36k mark on the button both times. Um, so we, we've sort of deduced that that's not salt and it's probably not hydration. Uh, what what why, do, why do people cramp in specific areas of their body, Andy?
2: Good question. So cramping in general is obviously not salt related. Now there's, there's so much evidence now that crampers don't have low blood sodium levels. So the idea that you're low on sodium and you cramp is just not true at all. Um, in your case, and it's very, very common, two different things we have to look at. First of all is, was the pace too fast? Yeah. So number one reason people cramp is they went out too hard. Now, an ultra you know, everyone says oh, I didn't go out too hard. It's so, like, well, the fact you cramp kind of suggests that you did go out too hard because you cramped. Mm. Uh, so I never cramp in trainings like, Okay, well, that again suggests that you went out too hard because you don't grab the training. Um, so, that's the first thing. Did you go out too hard relative to the fitness um, you had? If you can, you know, really honestly say, look, no, all the predictions on my training said that this pace was sustainable, then you've got to start looking at, well, if it's always one particular muscle group and on one side, then there's a structural biomechanical issue. Um, so, if it's a hamstring that's always framping, you start thinking, well, is my glute on that side weak? So as we get tired, the glute fatigues, so the hamstring have to do more work, that increased work leads to cramp. Um, so then you start thinking, well, a good strength training program would be probably beneficial. Yeah. Um, and glutes, for example. Uh, and there's plenty of evidence to show that, you that know, people that don't cramp usually do strength training. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say is like, get onto a good strength training program mm-hmm. and see if that works. Um, once you've ticked the box of strength training and proper pacing mm. then it gets a bit more complicated then you've really got to speak to a good biomechanical um, physio and start looking at why is that hamstring changing maybe as you get fatigued your form changes slightly so you start taking shorter strides or longer strides and that's what the problem is so if you can identify changes in fatigue so for example using a power meter you know, we can look at stuff like that we can look at um, stride length, we can look at vertical oscillation, we can look at any changes in running effectiveness, power, and go, okay, well, as you get tired, this is what happens. So now we know that, let's put some drill, let's put some training practices in place to think about those things in training and see if we can put that into practice during a race day, so we eliminate that kind of source of fatigue.
1: Yeah, that's um, so crazy. yeah,
2: i approach it.
1: Yeah, mate, lots, lots to think about there. Um, and certainly some alternatives to dumping more salt into my body. So <laughs> that's good that's lots
2: good of, of short-term solution like for you you know you might take salt with 35 k's and it might kind of help it a bit but it's not really addressing the fact that it's happened twice in the same spot it's no, not really addressing the key issue no so no of, same- yeah.
1: of course not now uh, i guess in, in relation to all that so I, I wanted to chat about pacing uh for an ultra marathon so mate, personally notoriously poor at this so clearly i have a lot to learn but and you're suggesting that uh, for a 100k trail race, starting at about 80 to 85% of functional threshold power is, is the sweet spot there. Can you quickly explain to the listeners what functional threshold power is before we get started?
3: Yes.
2: Yeah, so I use power meters for more than half my runners now. Um, and functional threshold power in simple terms is the same as lactate threshold for those of using heart rate. It's basically the maximum pace you can hold for about 50 minutes for the average fit athlete. Um, so with power meters, we can look at look at those figures and I can work out what kind of pace they should start at. Uh, and it's been fairly successful in, in getting people to slow down at the start of a race and still be running strongly at the end of the race. Um, for those who don't have power meters, it's like, um, what do I do now? I haven't got a power meter. Um, can I use heart rate? Um, my advice with heart rate is probably not the start of a race. Typically, our heart rate's a lot higher. I mm. mean, um, I've stood up the start line of an Ironman. My heart rate's been 120 um, before the gun's gone off, just nerves. So if you're using that to pace at the start of an ultra, like, it's, it's just not going to be successful at all. Just
1: too slow. So, sorry? It'll just be too, your, your pace will be too slow because the heart rate's too high. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, so then, um, then you think, well, if heart rate's no good, what can we use? So generally for the, for the mid-pack ultra runner doing 100K, your starting pace should be basically the same as your longest long run pace. Mm-hmm. So most of us will typically do somewhere between four to six hours a couple of times in the training prep. And the pace you can maintain for that is simply what you should start a 100K race at. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with that is on race day with fresh legs, adrenaline and all your mates around you, is you think you're running the same pace, but you're actually running faster. Mm. So, you know, you might run, and you can't do it on trails because it goes up and down, but let's say it will flat, uh, your four hour run pace is six minute k's, and you start off in your ultra and you think you're running the same pace, but actually it's five minute 45 k's. Mm. Um, and that doesn't come back to bite you until 50 or 60 k's in, mm. all of a sudden it's about to fall off. feels great for the first 40 k. But yeah, then, then it starts to, to hurt. So in general, my advice for those without power meters is to say, look, whatever pace you think is the right easy pace to start with, slow down a bit more. Yeah. And then you're on the right track. If it feels too easy, then you're on the right track. Like yeah. when, I, when I did uh, West Thailand Way, like I came from a background of being being a, a fairly good uh, marathon Ironman runner. Like I had a, a 303 Ironman marathon PB. Mm. Um so I got, when I started my first ultra, I kind of thought, well, I'm a good runner. Um, had a bit of a self-inflated sense of uh, how good I was at the stage. Yeah. Um, so I took off with a lead pack and I'm a took off with the guy who set the race record that year. Um, and the first 20 miles felt particularly easy. And then I finished seven hours slower than him. <laughs> um, so I learned my lesson well and truly. So UTMB, I did the opposite. I started super conservative. And at times I thought, this is probably too slow, but I kind of thought, you know what? After the the nightmare that was my first ultra, I just want to enjoy this race. I don't care if I don't smash, you know, finish top one hundred or finish. I just want to finish and enjoy it. Mm. So I took off really slow, and at I think it was Cormeilles, I was in I don't know seven hundredth position when I passed six hundred and fifty people in the last seventy k. Yeah. So you know, I didn't pass a single person going downhill until one hundred and twenty k mark. I didn't pass anybody going uphill until about 100k mark. But from about 100k mark onwards, no one passed me. Not mm. a single person passed me. Um, so the point of this is to say that if you start at a pace that feels more comfortable than you think you should be running at, it's likely that in the back half of the race, you're going to be that person that smiles and runs past everybody rather than that person that says, good on you, mate, as that person runs past you. Hmm. Um, but that requires shelving your ego and watching your mates who you think you are faster than them run ahead of you um, and being very patient and for a lot of blokes particularly they're not very good at either of those things
1: <laughs> yeah. it's very very true but uh the, the, there is certainly something uh, about the positive psychology in the back half of that race that really plays into what we've been talking about and so uh, I think knowing that, that that positive finish is going to come by slowing down at the start is, is, is a really easy way to shelve the ego, as you say. It's, it's, what a it's, fact
2: that people forget is virtually no one neck splits an ultra. Like, it's almost impossible to go too slow at the start. Mm. Obviously, you know, obviously, if you walked a stack of it, uh, theoretically, it is possible, but realistically, if you're running super easy, it's almost impossible to go too slow. And finish the race thinking, "Oh wow, I could have gone faster." Hmm. Like it's almost impossible to do that. Um, even even guys who set world records um, on like you know 100 miles in the track or whatever, they slow down in the last half. So everybody slows down. Yeah. So given that, if you're slowing down less than everybody else, a you're going to get to the finish line knowing that even though you don't feel absolutely smashed like you did last time you raced you're actually going to run faster. If you ran more of that last 40K, instead of being legs so smashed that you were kind of hiking, running, hiking, running, you're actually going to be running far, far more of it than usual. So don't be scared of going too slow at the front end of a race because it's almost impossible to go too slow. And then it's almost impossible to finish a race going, wow, I wish I'd gone faster at the first half. I would have finished faster overall. It, It never happens, never.
1: I I don't know that I've ever heard that the finish line of an ultra marathon, Andy. And I, I'm not sure that I will. I'm not sure, but I've got a I've got a, a listener question relating to that pacing, I guess, at the beginning. So this this is coming from uh, from Ben Duffus, who is officially the nicest man in ultra marathon running, um, and he asked, "Has it ever been a good idea to try and keep up with Jez Bragg during an ultra marathon?"
2: Yes, it has. It's been a great idea. Um... It worked really well for me, the first 20 miles. Um, that feeling you get of being in front of an ultra uh, is such a bust, it, 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 it's only happened to me twice, and that was the first time and I got addicted to that feeling. Um, however, unfortunately, ultras don't finish at 20 miles. Um, but yeah, the last 75 miles, it, it didn't work out that well. Um, so I would say, look, if you're after the glory, of the first 20 miles then it's a very good idea to go out with someone like jens or ben um, but you know if you want to actually race then maybe
3: not so good idea. <laughs> he,
1: he explained that you both tried to chase him down during your you know early days as an ultra marathon runner and it ended poorly for both of you
2: <laughs> very poorly, very poorly um, hey,
1: look re- relating to that pacing sort of piece I I'm a bit of a sucker for breaking down a race into specifically time sort of splits. So please tell me this is the wrong thing to do and it's the only thing holding me back from a sub four-hour six-foot track time.
2: Correct, it is. Well, the first bit, correct. The second bit, I, mean, I can't promise it'll be a sub four-hour six-foot. Um, <laughs> time goals is a really interesting one. Like, you know, let's take UTA because we're all familiar with that. We all know, you know all the, the Aussie listeners know this, the checkpoints and stuff like that almost always before UTA happens, I'll get, look, I want to be at the aquatic center at seven hours, 30. Should I set my time goal for 14 hours or should I set my time goal for 12 hours or 16 hours, whatever it is. My first question is like, how does that affect your race? Hmm. Like, if you set your time goal for 14 hours, how does that affect the first kilometer of your race? Does it give you any meaningful advice to look at your watch and go, I'm on 14 hour pace? Like the answer is no, like it doesn't at all. If you've got power, it's a little bit different, right? Because you know, I had a recent client of mine who decided to do a solo UTA just a weekend or so ago. Um, she was really gunning for 14, sub 14 hours at UTA until it got cancelled, so she did the route herself. She'd been running with power for ages. Based on all the data we had, I knew she was capable of going under 14 hours. I gave her the power targets for 14 hours. So from the first kilometre, she knew she had to stick to 175 watts, whatever it was, to get to 14 hours. So in that case, it's different because you've got something tangible. It's like doing a marathon and thinking, I want to run three and a half hours. So I need to run five minute Ks. So from kilometre one, I need to run five minute Ks. But unless you've got that, and most people haven't, it's like looking at your watch tells you nothing. Mm. Now, another example is a client of mine who I took on a few years ago now, um, I had a chat to him pre-race about this very topic and he got to Aquatic Centre 10 minutes slower than the previous year. Now, fortunately, I briefed him on this, but if I hadn't, he would have got to Aquatic Centre and gone, I've just spent all this year training with Andy. I've got to Aquatic Centre 15 minutes slower than what I did last year when I trained myself. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is not going well. I briefed him on this and he finished, I can't remember now, it's 45 minutes or an hour quicker by the end. Yeah. So... You know those those time checks are really just you've got a dartboard and you're throwing a dart at it and you're hoping that you hit it. With with established races like UTA that have got a lot of data, you can get you know spreadsheets and I know UTA's got a few where some data geek has kind of plugged all the numbers in and gone, okay, if you're to run fourteen hours, these are the time checks along the way you need to hit. Yeah. So you get to the you know the first checkpoint and you look at your watch and go, based on that geek's data. Excel sheet. I'm five minutes up or I'm five minutes down. I need to speed up. Or I need to slow down. Yeah. The problem with that, of course, is that that data geek has just got all the races and just put them into a calculator and worked out the splits. So you've got the splits average from somebody who started off at 12 hour pace and finished at 14 hour pace, somebody who paced it really well, and somebody who didn't pace at all and you've got them all averaged out into one and that now is the ideal split. Uh, Is that a good way to base your race on? Is that a good way to get to checkpoint one and go, I'm five minutes too slow, I need to speed up? Like when I did UTMB, I had the same thing and I thought the same thing. So I printed out all these kind of times. I was aiming for 30 hours, 32 hours or 34 hours. So I got the kind of split time for those three times. And what I noticed is I started off at around 31 hour pace and by the time I got to call my ear, I was on 33 hour pace. So I thought this really isn't helping me, like I'm not using the data at all negatively in my mind, like it's not good. So I threw it away and just ran how I felt and I ran 28.45. Uh I was on track for 33 according to the data, but I ran five hours quicker because I paced it well. Mm. So, you know, it's all very well to have a goal of breaking sub 14, but really, We don't have enough metrics to say with any certainty that that's possible. So your goal should be to run the best race possible and let the time look after itself. That's not to say you shouldn't use sub-14 as a motivator. So if you get to QVH, for example, and you you know roughly what time you're on for, you think, I think I'm on the sub-14. Great, use that as a a motivator. Like one cue I give my clients is, imagine there's like a mountain bike ahead of you with one of those time clocks above the head facing you. And it gives you the splits to run sub-14. And imagine you are just on the cusp, Mm. just like in a marathon where they have, you know, the lead van has a kind of split time above them so the elite runners can see what pace they're doing. Imagine that in front of you. So you can use that to try and motivate yourself to push really hard and go sub-14. So you can use that. But to think that the hour you spent plowing through spreadsheets and working out split times is going to allow you to look at your watch at 30 kilometre mark and know whether to speed up or slow down, you're just kidding yourself.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And look, I I think the only positive I've ever gained from it is when I'm just slightly ahead of the split time, which is completely arbitrary anyway. And it gives you that little bit of positive psychology, I guess. But for the most part, it it seems to be a useless exercise and something just to busy myself with between patients at work. (laughs) Um, It
2: does work if you're slightly ahead, but if you're slightly behind, it can work negatively. So you take that risk. By doing that
1: that's right that's right exactly just just chatting about the um the, the power meter stuff andy I, i've seen the the stride foot pot i think advertiser there are there several brands out there that uh, listeners can have a look at
2: yeah look there are a few brands unfortunately none of them are particularly good apart from stride
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, i say that i have no financial interest in stride like i, I don't get any affiliate links from sending people there, like I make no money from Stride at all. Um, i say that from a point of view that I've had other clients use different power meters. I've seen the data. And the problem is that although they do give power, with Garmin Power and with Coros Power, which are the two other main companies that are doing power, the data's so jumpy that you can't really use it to look at your watch and go, I need to slow down and speed up. In real time one minute it's 240 watts, next minute it's 270 watts, next minute it's 210 watts. Yeah. It's, like, it's like saying one minute's five minute Ks, next minute's five and a half minute Ks, next minute's four and a half minute Ks. Yeah. So I can't use that to actually base my training on. No. Post-race or post-run analysis, it kind of averages out and it's not too bad, but that's useless for you when you're actually running. Mm. So for that reason, I think if, you, if you're going to go down the power path, you're better off just investing the money and going the stride. Yeah. Other companies may catch up, but most other companies use GPS to derive their power. Mm-hmm. So, if your GPS data is inaccurate, then your power data will be inaccurate. Yeah, so, yeah. if you're running you know, buildings or forest or whatever, um, you're relying on GPS accuracy, which just isn't there sometimes. Whereas Strike doesn't use GPS at all. Yeah, so, exactly. it's far, far more accurate. So, if you want to go down that path, use
1: Strike, definitely. Yeah, no, no, no that's good. That's good. It seems like fairly valuable sort of, uh, information repacing training, et cetera. So it's probably worth our listeners just having a little squeeze there. Um, but I do like the, uh, the alternate find a pace. that feels easy at the start and then slow down a little more. I like that. I like that quite. That's good. Um, I've got one more listener question. This is from Simon Hayes. Um, uh, she says, I, I know you're on a, Bit of a hiatus from racing. So, what epic event would tempt you back into the racing world, Andy?
2: Um, yeah, I was going to race this year. To be honest, um, I had plans to do a hundred mile race in Norway, um, up in the Lofoten Islands, far northern Norway. I'm kind of with with the racing. I'm kind of like I love travelling. I've got a big history of travelling. Um, so, racing for me is a way to explore. Different parts of the world, whether that be in Australia or overseas. Um, so for me, the Lofoten's just, you know, it's one of those places to call my imagination. Um, so I was planning to that this May, of course, COVID hit and, and ruined that. Um, I wanted to do Tour de Jones. Um, obviously, COVID hit and ruined that idea as well. Um, Australian races, yeah, looks like I'm gonna to have to focus on Australian races next year, um, given I don't think we're gonna be able to travel overseas till at least late next year. Um, so the Aussie race attempts the most is GCR. Um Hopefully that'll be on next year. And for me personally, I, I, I really like exploring. I like the adventure side of things. I like 100 miles, better than 100 k's. Um, just because with 100 k's, you know, you start in the morning, you're going to be finished by that evening at some stage and you're back in your nice warm, cosy bed that night. With uh, 100 miler, you never know. You never know how long it's going to take. You never know what's going to happen. And to me, it just gives me that more sense of adventure. Um, that I don't quite get doing the shorter races. But that's a personal thing, like we're all different. But yeah, definitely the bigger, more extreme races in, in adventurous terrain is is where my heart lies. Okay,
1: mate, that sounds good. Sounds like there's a couple of things tempting you out there, getting you uh, back out of retirement, so to speak. Mate, my, um, my, my favourite article of yours, uh, and I've read many of them, is racing versus surviving an ultra marathon. And, and I think that's... um. Yeah, such a great goal for for people. I think a lot of people survive versus race. Um, If you had to break it down to, you know, a a couple of key points there, how would you suggest that we race versus survive an ultra?
0: So
2: just clarifying that so listeners who haven't read that blog understand. So racing, I I don't mean elites. You know, you can be back of the pack and be racing at the end of the race. Um, Surviving is easier to find. Surviving is where you get to that point, you know, Maybe it's 70K, maybe it's 80K of a 100K race, or maybe it's 120K of a miler. And you get to that point where you think, okay, I'm done now. I just want the finish line to come. I know I'm gonna finish, like I'm not gonna DNF. I know I'm gonna finish, but I'm done really mentally. I've checked out and I just want this to be over. Uh, My stomach's giving me problems. I can't go as fast as I want to go. I'm walking more than I probably should. I'm really just want it to be finished. That's surviving, whereas racing is, I'm enjoying this. I can't run everything, but I'm running all I can. When I hike, I'm hiking fast. I'm still pushing as fast as I possibly can within how I feel. And I'm still enjoying the experience of being out here. Um, and for most of us, like, there wouldn't be a person out there that would choose the former rather than the latter. Mm. You know, how you get to be in the latter, the racing rather than surviving, really is, is dictated by the first 30, 40 k's of your race. And it comes down to how well you pace and how well you look after your stomach. If you can get the pacing right and you can look after your stomach well, then no reason at all you can't be racing the last 30, 40K. That really comes down to shelving the ego and being patient in the first 30, 40K
1: and
2: then taking advantage of that in the last 30, 40K. Yeah,
1: that's perfect. So, is that? so simple. <laughs> I love it. And, and the mind games become a lot more simple if you can uh, do that at the start.
2: Yeah, they do. They do. It's, it's just, it's just a different mindset um, when you're racing at the end. Like I know in UTMB, like every time I saw a person ahead, like it's right, next person to catch, let's go. Mm. So and you're just passing people all the time. That doesn't matter whether you're at the front or at the back. That can still happen to you. Whereas at West Thailand Way, it was like it's another person going past me, another one, and another one, and each one is like driving another nail into the coffin mm. of misery. Um, that is surviving at the end of an ultra. Um, so yeah, just because you're all back of the pack, just because you're a, a 20 hour UTA runner, doesn't mean you can't race the end of the ultra. You can still be really enjoying it, still be hiking as fast as you can, running the segments you wanna run uh, and really get the most out of that race.
1: Yeah, that's great, great. And, and I, I would encourage uh, listeners to jump on mile 27's uh, blog page and, and read that article because it's, it's a cracker before your next race. Um, Andy, how is it best for people to get in contact with you if they have questions or would like to j- join the Mile 27 stable? Um, what, what's your best contact there?
2: Yeah, either through uh, email, just info at, at mile27 or andy at mile27.com.au or Instagram or Facebook, um, either personal or the Mile 27 Facebook page. I'm pretty contactable. So, yeah, by all means, get in touch with questions or if. If coaching's your thing and you're not sure, just we're always happy to have a chat with you and see if coaching is the right fit for you. Um, Yeah.
1: And and as far as um, all your diverse bunch of people, it sounds like you've got a little bit of a Lazarus from Barclay Marathon style uh, entry process. Do they have to, you know, bring a a number plate from the hometown or buy you a pack of cigarettes or something like that, Andy? Or is it more simple than that?
2: Well, it's pretty, it's more simple than that. It's, It's pretty much... Like there's no set criteria. uh, (laughs) It's really a case of does this person sound like they would be interesting to coach? Now it could be for a 50 K. It could be for a 200 mile. It could be for a race in Adelaide or it could be for uh, a run across Tennessee in the U S right. There's no specific criteria. Uh, If you're interested at all, just email me and I'll we'll, we'll chat. We'll have questions and I'll figure out if If I'm four, I decide that you're probably not the right fit for me, Um, then I've got two other coaches who are great coaches and great guys um, who I can put you in contact with and you can have a chat with them. And if if, if you contact me and I don't take you on, it's nothing personal, nothing personal at all. But I know for me to stay motivated and for me to stay and be the best coach that I want to be, I need that variety in, in different athletes, different events, different terrains, different countries that really keeps me excited to be a coach each day. Um, so that's why I do
1: it yeah that's great great to love what you do Andy that's fantastic mate, th- thank you so much for a uh, wealth of information we've covered so many different topics there and, and some great info for our listeners I think I'll have to go through and listen to this one again just to write some stuff down um, yeah it's really been valuable uh, so we appreciate your time and hopefully you can get your way back to Byron Bay in the not too distant future mate um, yes hopefully and uh, yeah, get get you back on the ultra marathon scene. Quick, smart.
2: Cheers, mate. In your chat.
1: Thanks, Andy. Cheers, mate. Clear, 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 clear,
0: clear, clear.